I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 29th, 2019. Coming up, an interview with Professor Noah Feirer of CU Boulder on his work characterizing the microbial communities that are all around us, in our homes, gardens, oceans, and even deep underground. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Recently, we spoke with range scientist Fred Provenza on this program about his work identifying some of the cues that herbivores, like sheep and goats, use to decide what to eat. Not surprisingly, we humans have a variety of internal sensors telling us uh, what to eat, too. The gut nervous system communicates information about the nutritional values of food to the brain. This information is processed in the brain in a way that trains us to revisit foods that possess certain rewarding characteristics. One of these sensors is specialized to recognize blood sugar level. Because blood glucose is a major fuel, monitoring and maintaining a specific level is vital to our survival. The brain's reward system is activated by a rise in blood sugar after a meal. The more sugar calories are detected, the bigger the reward. In modern life, unlike for most of human history, we don't lack access to carbohydrates, a major source of blood sugar. But our brains don't know that and still reward us for eating sweets. Fats are another important source of energy that are metabolized differently from carbohydrates. So it makes sense that we have a different sensing system for this nutrient. But the same reward system is activated in the brain, the result being that we love fatty foods. Processed foods take advantage of these ancient reward systems by hiding extra stimulants in foods. Many of these foods and beverages contain both nutritive sugars and non-nutritive sweeteners. By contrast, in unprocessed foods, sweetness is proportional to the sugar content and therefore calorie content of the food. Recent studies show that combining nutritive sugars and non-nutritive sweeteners produce disproportionately greater rewards. More damning evidence for the role of processed foods in the current obesity epidemic. This work was published last week in the journal Science. Nationally renowned permaculturalist Avery Ellis will describe how to create pollinator foraging habitat and food for people using the permaculture concept of food forests. He will be describing threats that pollinators face due to diminishing habitats and pesticides, while focusing on real solutions that you can take home and immediately apply to your own home, yard, neighborhood, and community. This free presentation is tonight at 6.30 at the Longmont Public Library. For more details, go to their website. Microbial communities are all around us, in our homes, gardens, oceans, even deep underground, but their roles in the function of the biosphere are poorly understood. 
Professor Noah Feuer at the University of Colorado here in Boulder uses DNA to identify microbes in communities ranging from insect microbiomes, yes, they do have microbiomes, to Antarctic soils. He has discovered lots of previously unknown bacteria, viruses, and other microscopic critters. Welcome to the program, Noah. I understand that you do a lot of work with microbial communities. And so before we get into what kind of work you do, why don't you tell us what exactly these communities are? Yeah, so um, correct. I'm a microbial ecologist. So I study microbes in a wide range of environments, everything from soil to the atmosphere to you know what microbes live on plant leaves to even those microbes living with us inside our homes. And by microbes, I mean it's essentially a broad definition of anything that's small. So we study bacteria, we study fungi, we study protists that eat bacteria, for example. So a wide range of different microorganisms in lots of different environments. And when you sample this environment, how do you go about doing that? Like when you go into a house, say, for the kind of studies that we um, I, I interviewed Rob Dunn about his book a few weeks ago. So when you go into a house, do you swab surfaces? Do you suck up dust in vacuum cleaners? How do you get your samples? Good question. So one nice thing about studying microbes is they're everywhere, literally. And that's not to make people paranoid. Most of these are perfectly harmless, and some may actually be beneficial under certain circumstances, but they're everywhere. So fortunately, sampling is oftentimes not too difficult. So for example, we can sample the dust from your, you know, from your home, like, for example, on the trim above your door, that area that never gets cleaned, essentially just sampling it with a sterile Q-tip. Or we could sample water, or we could sample the slime on the inside of your shower head, or we can sample soil. Um, basically, any environment we look at, um, even the skin on your hand, right, we can swab the bacteria off the skin on your hand and see what sort of bacteria are there and what they might be doing. So you get a little swab on a Q-tip, on a sterile Q-tip, and in this teeny little volume of the Q-tip, there's gazillions of little critters. And you are like a detective now, and you have to figure out who all is in there. Exactly. So, you know, there's microbes everywhere, and in most environments, there's lots of them. So even in your house dust that you probably don't pay too much attention to, there's thousands or millions of microbial cells that can be in there. Some of them may be dead. Many of them are going to be, be live or at least viable. Um, and what's also really interesting about microbes, so there's lots of them. They're everywhere. And they're also microbial communities can be really diverse. You can be talking about hundreds to thousands of different species in a given sample of dust, for example. And this, again, includes both bacteria as well as fungi, as well as many other different types of microorganisms. And they're hard to identify. So we can look at plants or we can look at birds and we can sort of identify them based on shape and morphology and color and leaf what the leaves look like and so on and so forth. And that's much more difficult for microorganisms because oftentimes they don't have distinguishing characteristics. You can't just look under a microscope and say, okay, this is the type of bacterial species, for example, that we have in this sample. Right. And a lot of times nobody even knows how to grow them because since we don't know what they are, we don't know what their requirements are. Exactly. So for much of the history of, of microbiology going back centuries, people would grow bacteria, for example, on a Petri plate, and then 
um, identify them that way. The problem is, is most bacteria are very difficult to grow on a petri plate. So you can't just take a swab of dust sample and get all the bacteria that are in that sample to grow on petri plates or in the lab, for example. So instead, what we do is we look at the DNA found in that sample and let the DNA tell us what types of species, for example, are found in, of, of bacteria or fungi or what have you are found in a given sample. Yeah, and this is, to me, a really amazing um, step forward because it, it's just so cool that you can take a sample, this, this mix of unknown species, and separate them out on the basis of their DNA. And, and so I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too far, but let's talk a little bit about this methodology because it's like magic, I think. Well, it's not magic, but it is cool. <laughs> it is very cool, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so essentially, you know, it uses some of these DNA, t- DNA sequencing technologies, a lot of which was originally developed for the Human Genome Project. And it allows us to take a DNA sample and we target specific genes that essentially serve as barcodes that allow us to identify the different types of microorganisms found in a sample. And we sequence that. So we use that snippet of DNA, the a, G, C's, and T's, the base pairs of DNA, of DNA that are in that sample to tell us what taxa we have in there, you know, what specific types of bacteria or fungi or what have you are, are in a given sample. And so someone must have done, or some groups, obviously plural, must have done initial cataloging work to identify specific sequences or specific barcodes, if you will, that match up with an individual species of bacteria. Yes, exactly. So, you know, what we can do is we can take these little snippets of DNA sequence and we can compare them to databases and we can say, okay, well, we found, for example, 1,500 different species of bacteria in the sample. Some of them, we're going to know exactly what it is. We're like, okay, well, this is Pseudomonas aeruginosa, just to pick an example, a specific type of bacteria. But many samples, particularly when we're looking at dust samples or even samples um, in other types of environments, we know we can say, okay, well, they're in this group of bacteria, but it's an undescribed species. And that's very common. So, for example, in soil, you know, more than 90% of the bacteria that we find there have no name. We can identify, we, can, we, can, we know what they are from their DNA sequence, but we can't put a species name on them, for example. Right. So then it seems to me that it would be really hard to get to the next level of analysis and say, what do these guys do if you don't even know what they are? Exactly. And that's what keeps me, keeps me up at night, right? <laughs> so people always ask me, or I routinely get the question, well, do you find you know, novel species in your sample? And the problem is, is in many environments like soil, like dust in your home, or even in the water pipes in your home, oftentimes the majority of the taxa that we find are undescribed species. So then the next, you know, so now we can start at least charting who's there in a given sample. What types of microorganisms might be living in your showerhead, just to use an example. Then the next step is, okay, well, what are they doing in there? What are they eating? Why are they living in that environment and maybe not in other environments? How might they influence human health, either positively or negatively? And that's rarely a simple answer to those, rarely simple answers to those questions. And that's what is really fun. Yeah. Trying to answer that. Yeah. So let's stick with this showerhead example because I did um, go into a little detail in my interview with Rob about this. And I can link to, I think there was a New York Times article about it too. And uh, um, how do you start assessing functionality? Tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, so, you know, shower heads were, are kind of, whenever I mentioned that we were doing a study on shower heads, usually people's first reaction is to laugh. You know, like, really? Why shower heads, right? It's because it is kind of a, it, I'll admit, it's kind of a weird environment to look, look for microbes. But the fact of the matter is, is if you look in your shower head, if you, if you unscrew your shower head and look inside it, it's filled with microbes. Um, and it's not to make anybody scared of their shower head or anything like that, but there's lots of microbes that live there. And it's kind of a rough environment to live as a microbe, right? It could, you've got periods of hot water coursing through there under high pressure. You have periods where the shower head drains and is very dry. There's not a lot to eat. There's not a lot of nutrients and carbon sources for microbes to leave. But despite that, there's lots of microbes in there. Um, so a few years back, well, about two years back, we started looking at, well, what are these microbes in the shower head? And in particular, we were interested in a genus of bacteria, a group of bacteria, the mycobacterium, uh, which is important for public health reasons. And um, this is a, a group of bacteria where some members of this group can cause respiratory infections that are very difficult to treat. And it appears to be that one mechanism by which people get this pathogen or get exposed to this, this group of bacteria is from their shower heads. So you turn on the shower, you take a shower, and you get this, this um, burst of, of bacteria that come out with the shower water and potentially can be, can, you can breathe them in. Right. And so one thing that's interesting to me is you, you were mentioning this is a really rough environment. And, you know, at, at first I start thinking, well, what do these guys eat? But there's since it's a community, there's going to be some critters that are going to eat the other critters. Right. And so there's going to be a food chain and and there's going to be top predators, I would guess. And so um, are these um, mycobacteria, are they, where do they fall in in that grouping? Well, it's a good question. So, so you're exactly right. You know, if you look at this I guess you could call it a slime inside your shower head. And it's just like home to all these different microorganisms that live in your shower head. You have bacteria, you have viruses that attack the bacteria, you have um, protists or little amoeba-like creatures that go around and graze on the bacteria. You have bacteria that eat other bacteria, right? You're exactly right. There's this whole food web inside your shower head. You know, it's like a miniature tropical rainforest sitting in there above our heads while we're showering. And the mycobacterium, so what they appear to be, they're really good at tolerating stress. So they're really good at tolerating chlorine, for example, which is oftentimes in our, in our um, household water. They're good at tolerating high temperatures that they may see when the shower is running. They can tolerate really low amount. They can, they can grow even when there's not a lot for them to eat in the water. So the mycobacteria, they don't grow fast, but they're really tolerant, and that's why they, in some shower heads they can be uh, quite abundant. And so this idea of a, of a community in your shower head is also intriguing because it sounds like if left to their own devices, the mycobacteria will thrive where some of the other bacteria won't do so well, like if there's chlorine. And so it's, it's a funny thought to me that the more we treat our water and try to make it safe, then we're actually selecting for species that are bigger problems. Exactly. Microbes are tough. Right. So when, even though, you know, we oftentimes in, in some municipalities, we, we, can, we put a reasonably high concentrations of chlorine in the water. 
And, and chlorine is effective at removing the numbers of bacteria, but there's some bacteria that effectively shrug it off, right? They, they are less sensitive to the effects of chlorine. And mycobacteria, and we have, we have evidence, and other people have evidence as well, that they're a group that is not very sensitive to chlorine, and they can actually start um, growing inside a showerhead, even under conditions where you have water with lots of chlorine. So I want to I want to extend this idea of community because um, that's a pretty simple community probably in the showerhead and in the soil the communities probably get much more extensive and those kinds of communities are probably incredibly important to the biosphere in general and to supporting um, the kinds of let's say agricultural or natural ecosystems that we re- that we as humans rely on. So, can you talk a little bit about some of the things you found in soil communities? Yeah. So, of all the environments that we've studied, and again, we've looked at bacteria on leaf surfaces, in soil, in showerheads, in household dust, um, on human skin, in uh, human feces, you, you name it, we've looked there. I would say that uh, soil is perhaps the most diverse environment from a microbial perspective. So, for example, in a showerhead, we'll often see, you know, maybe, you know, 100 or so different species of bacteria in soil. We're talking thousands to tens of thousands. And again, most of these bacteria that we find, even in soil from your lawn, most of them are completely undescribed. We can document that they're in that soil, and presumably they're living in that soil, but we don't know what they're doing, how they might influence soil fertility, um, how they might interact with other members in the soil community and so forth. So there's really just lots of question marks um, and lots of undescribed diversity that we find in soil. And have you done comparative studies where you look at um, the diversity between environments, let's say a, a disturbed versus an undisturbed. And, you know, I would guess just based on other ecological analyses that disturbance would um, would result in the loss of diversity. Have you seen that kind of um, phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely factors that influence, for example, if we're talking about soil, there's definitely factors that influence how many different types of bacteria or how many different types of fungi. Um, I mean, they're all fairly diverse. So even a soil in the Atacama Desert has thousands of different bacterial species that that are living there. Um, But yeah, I mean, for example, you know, in really acidic soils, we tend to see lower diversity of of microorganisms. And same in in oftentimes in really dry soils where there's just, for example, we just, um, about a year ago, I was in Antarctica sampling soils there and, and exposed surfaces um, and there, the, the diversity is quite low. Um, it's a rough place to live. But yeah. despite that, there's still microorganisms that live there, at least in many of these regions in, in uh, Antarctica. And so how do you go about figuring out what they do, what these unknown species do, what their roles are in the ecosystem? Well, so the first step is who's there, right? right. So we can say, okay, well, this organism... We don't know what it's doing, but we only find it in these types of environments or these types of soils, for example. And that gives us some insight into where it likes to live. But again, that's not really telling us why it's in those particular environments. So one thing we can do is if we're lucky, we can grow it in the lab. And that's 
I say lucky because most of these organisms are very difficult. I won't say impossible, but they're very difficult to grow in the lab. For example, they're often very slow growing or they require really specific conditions that we can't replicate in the lab. Okay, so if we can grow it in the lab, we can start studying, okay, well, here's, how, here's what it eats, here's the you know, temperature it prefers to grow under, and so forth. For those organisms we can't grow in the lab, we have to go back to the DNA. So what we do is we try to assemble the genomes from these organisms and figure out from the genomic information what it might be doing in its, envi in its environment, what it might be eating, how it might be like making a living, what sort of environments it, it tends to grow best under. Um, and it's just a hypothesis, but we're essentially using the DNA information to figure out what they might be doing in their environment. So you're basically taking DNA information from an unknown species and then comparing specific genes to known species that have known functions or, or known roles in a community and seeing if there's similarity? Exactly, yeah. So, for example, you know, there's this bacteria that we found to be very abundant in deeper soils. We haven't been able to grow it in the lab, um, but it seems to be very abundant. You, you go, you know, for example, a couple feet down in soil, and it's often the dominant group of organisms, microorganisms that we see in soil, this, this, this novel bacteria. So we don't really know what it's doing, but what we can do is we assemble this genome and we can say, okay, well, it's got some unique features. So, for example, one thing, it appears to consume carbon monoxide, actually. We don't know, but oh, wow. it appears to consume carbon monoxide in soil. And so that may be what it's using to grow or in part what it may be using to grow. So we can look at particular genes and try to tease apart what that organism is doing in, in its environment. So just to convince our listeners that these are important kind of questions, what are some of the, the functions that known bacteria or other microbes perform in a soil that make them really invaluable? Right. So soil is not sterile. We know that. I mean, there's lots of microorganisms as well as other um, organisms, you know, animals, there's um, protists, there's nematodes, and so forth. And all these organisms in soil are really important for soil fertility. So any gardener will know that it's not just the pH of your soil and the amount of nutrients. It's also what organisms are living in there. And that's going to determine how productive your garden is, for example. <laughs> Excuse me. So they play an important role in soil fertility. They also play an important role in the cycling of carbon and the cycling of nitrogen. Um, for example, how much carbon is held in soil versus going back into the atmosphere as CO2, a lot of that is determined by the microorganisms that live in soil. There's also microorganisms in soil that are pathogens to plants or can be beneficial to plants. Um, so the list goes, goes on and on, but they're really the drivers of of a lot of important processes that occur in soil. Yeah, it's truly amazing. And like you said, you don't have to convince the gardeners. I just know that it's always remarkable to me. I throw a bunch of vegetable, vegetable scraps and leaves and grass clippings into my compost. And, you know, six months later, I have really beautiful, rich soil. And it's all those microbes that are doing it for me. Exactly. And, and, the, and the plants often rely on these microorganisms to, to grow and to thrive. So, for example, right now there's a lot of um, interest in can we identify specific microorganisms that we can either add to soil or potentially manage for in soil to make uh, crop production, uh, to increase crop production. Um, because it's, it's, it's now well recognized that, you know, plants aren't just in a sterile environment and in a sterile soil. You know, a lot of how well they grow 
and thrive in that environment is going to be determined by what microbes they're exposed to in the soil and what those microbes are doing. Right. It's so similar to the microbiome in our gut that we know some of those species are doing really good things, but we're not really sure what species are doing the good things. So we can't just take those microbes in some kind of supplement. Exactly. It's a, it's a complicated problem, right? You can't just, if you're thinking of using sort of a plant metaphor, you can't just convert an abandoned lot into a redwood forest by sprinkling a few redwood seeds on there. But you're exactly right. You know, that's the question is, is, you know, until we know what these microbes are doing, it's hard to manage them. It's hard to understand what microbes might be most beneficial to plants and how we can start incorporating information on the microbes in soil to start predicting and um, understanding what um, microbes might be beneficial for agriculture or, or other purposes. And just more generally, for example, if we want to understand how soils are going to respond to ongoing climate change, we need to understand what those microbes are doing because they're largely responsible, not exclusively, but they play a key role in the cycling of carbon into and out of soil. Yeah, that's a great point. And unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. There's so much to talk about, but I will link to your lab website on our radio show website. And it sounds like you have your work cut out for you, Noah. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. That was Professor Noah Fire at the University of Colorado here in Boulder talking about his work on characterizing vital and poorly understood microbial communities all around us. This interview is part of How on Earth's series called Our Microbes Ourselves. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm Beth Bennett, and this week I am both the executive producer and the show producer. This week's show was engineered by yours truly, Chip Granditz. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Lowell Lieberman's Flute Concerto. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Chip Granditz.